0: Hey y'all, it's Jonathan, and before we get to today's episode, I've got something I want to say, and that's, there are a lot of Russian names in this episode that I absolutely butcher, but none do I butcher as much as I do one that's spelled K-V-A-N-T, because I forgot while recording the episode that in Russian, the V is essentially like a W-U type sound, like Vodka is vodka, So, through the entire episode, I pronounce it as Kvant, when it should be Quant. Which makes way more sense because it does reference Quantum. So, just be prepared to hear me mispronounce Quant as Kvant a billion times. As well as pretty much every other Russian term and name that's in this. My apologies, it's my fault, but... Rather than go back and re-record everything, I thought I would warn you up front. And now, let's get to this interesting, if not correctly pronounced, episode. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And in this episode, we are continuing our history about space stations. We are going to focus on Mir. So in the last episode, I talked about the first space station, the Salyut-1. That was from the Soviet Union. Plus other stations in the Salyut line, uh, some of which were secretly military reconnaissance space stations, that were masquerading as civilian science stations. Pretty sneaky, those Soviets. I also talked about the Skylab Space Station, which was inhabited for just 171 days, but had been in orbit for 2,249 days. And I touched on this in the last episode, but the reason Skylab was unoccupied for most of the time it was orbiting Earth is that NASA no longer really had access to launch vehicles and space capsules that could you know, visit the station. They didn't. They physically didn't have the equipment or the budget needed to send more missions to Skylab and was essentially waiting on the space shuttle program to come online to go back to Skylab. But the space shuttle program was delayed to the point where Skylab could no longer maintain orbit, and it reentered Earth's atmosphere in the summer of 79. But we've got a lot more to talk about when it comes to space stations, and now we're going to pop back over to the then-Soviet Union. So Skylab came down in 79, and the last of the Salyut stations, Salyut 7, entered orbit in 1982 and would remain in orbit until 1991. Now, while Salyut 7 was in orbit, a new Soviet space station would take form in space, and that station was Mir, M-I-R. Now, just as a reminder, before Mir, all space stations were what we call monolithic in form. Now, that means that they went up fully assembled in, in one big piece. You know, kind of like they were a one-piece space station, even though if you break it down, they're actually made up of many, many pieces, but it's all, you know, pre-assembled. Mir would take the next step forward. It would be the first modular space station, meaning the station would ultimately be made up of multiple modules which would then connect to a core module out in space. Uh, There's a lot of benefits to this particular approach, but the big one is that you're not as limited on internal space inside your station, and you're not limited by mass the way you would be with a monolithic design. So let's get into physics for a second to really understand why this is a big deal. So Isaac Newton, that smarty pants, mathematically demonstrated the concept of an exchange of momentum in the 1600s. And a few centuries later, a Russian scientist named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky uh, applied the idea of conservation of momentum to rockets. This was in 1903. And that became the basis of all of our rocketry moving forward. And there are three big things you have to keep in mind when you're trying to launch something into space using a rocket. Those three things are the energy that you need to generate in order to work against gravity, which in most rocket equations we represent with the delta V to indicate rocket velocity. Uh, The value of this depends on where you're planning on going. If you're going to Mars, then you'll need to exert more energy than if you were just going into low Earth orbit. Uh, Once you've selected where you're going and where you're starting from, the value of this variable solidifies. Uh, There's nothing we can do to change that number. This is literally physics. It's the amount of energy needed to get into that part from wherever you are. Uh, Also, it takes about twice the amount of energy to go from Earth to Mars as it would take to go from Earth to Earth orbit. However, what's really interesting to me is just getting into orbit is about half of that total energy to get to Mars. Because just overcoming Earth's gravity and not falling back to the planet requires a lot of energy. So while it takes more energy to get to Mars than it does to get to low Earth orbit, just getting to low Earth orbit is hard. Then you've got how much energy is available in your propellant, right? How much potential energy is stored in the fuel you are using. Not all propellants are equal in this. Some are more dense in energy than others. But again, we're limited here the rockets we use rely on chemical reactions. There is a limit to how much energy we can release out of these chemical reactions. Physics dictates it. We can't go beyond that. So again, reality has limited us. And finally, you've got the propellant mass fraction, which is how much propellant you need in comparison with the total mass of the stuff you're sending off into space, your rocket. So we've decided where we want to go, you know, like low Earth orbit, and we've decided which propellant we're going to use to get there, and those two factors tell us the limitations we face in getting a spacecraft to that point, because it sets the ratio we have to hit between the amount of fuel and the total mass of the rocket. And obviously, as you add more fuel, you add more mass. So you start hitting some fundamental limitations there, too. We can't just keep, you know, building more massive rockets. You start to run into an issue with that ratio, or at least, you know, we start to bump up against tough restrictions if we try to do that. And so if we want to build sizable structures in space, rather than just like creating a truly monstrous rocket, the solution is to make those structures modular and then to launch large sections of the structures in individual launches and then assemble them in space. That's what Mir would do now. As I'm sure anyone listening to these episodes understands, the road to developing, constructing, and deploying any sort of spacecraft tends to be a pretty long one. While the first Mir module would launch in February 1986, the planning for the station began a decade earlier, in the middle of the Salyut program. So Mir got an official approval from the Soviet government in 1976. But that didn't mean it was a straight path from planning to execution a lot was going on in the Soviet Union, including a lot of political battles within the Soviet space program. Different leaders within different departments were scrabbling for funding and for authority, and it meant that budgets were shifted around multiple times, which honestly is not that different from how things happen in NASA, if we're you know really being critical. During the span of years between 1976 and 1986, Changes in the Soviet space program meant that funds were pulled from Mir and redirected toward a different space project, that of the Buran spacecraft. Now, I'm not sure that I could do a full Tech Stuff episode about the Buran, but it does merit mention. Also, again, apologies for my pronunciation. It's going to be terrible, and that's all on me. But the Buran, B-U-R-A-N, was essentially the Soviet equivalent of the space shuttle, a reusable space plane-style spacecraft designed to go into low-Earth orbit and then to act as kind of a plane upon return to Earth. And most importantly, it would be reusable. Now, that project began in the 70s with construction starting in uh, 1980. And here in America, we had the space shuttle program in development at this same time. The Soviets couldn't afford to go full steam ahead both with Mir and Buran. So, in 1984, the administrators redirected Mir's budget toward Buran's test flights. Now, that could have spelled doom for Mir, but then Valentin Glushko, a Soviet engineer in charge of the entire space program, uh, who had been part of some of those political fights within the Soviet space program I mentioned earlier, anyway, he had committed to getting Mir in orbit by the mid-80s, so he managed to redirect some funds back into the Mir space station program. Buran, by the way, would go on to conduct an uncrewed test flight, so no one was aboard. But it was successful. It it happened without really a hitch in 1988. But it didn't really do anything else. And uh, the big reason for that had nothing to do with the technology. It had everything to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But a few years after getting the thumbs up the soviets planned to merge mir with the almaz program now if you listen to our previous episode in this series you know that almaz was the designation for a soviet military space station project almaz had previously merged you know with salyut uh, stations 2 3 and 5 in the salyut program were all meant to act as military reconnaissance stations. Now, Salyut 2 had a, m- had multiple technical problems that led to it re-entering the Earth's atmosphere just a couple of weeks after it first attained orbit. Fortunately, there were no people aboard. No crew had visited the, the space station at that point, so no one was lost as a result of that. Salyut 3 and Salyut 5 had a little more success, though very little is known about those stations because the Soviets were not super eager to share military secrets with the rest of the world. That's not to say that there aren't resources out there. There are. I just find a lot of them to be... questionably reliable. Anyway, as part of the ALMAZ program, engineers designed a spacecraft with the designation DOS. So DOS-1 was actually used to serve as the Salyut-1 space station. DOS-2, 3, and 4 were Salyut-2, 3, and 5, respectively. Salyut-6 and 7 were DOS-5 and DOS-6. And then the core of the Mir module would be DOS-7. So, this was a case of the engineers taking the designs for an earlier space station and then involving them to allow for that modular approach. DOS or DOS-7 would be the core module, the heart and soul of Mir. This core module would also serve as crew quarters. In fact, for a while, this would be the entirety of the space station. Uh, It actually had six docking ports, which allowed not just Soyuz capsules to dock, but also cargo ships, or they would serve as the connection point for other Mir modules. And each module could focus on a specific type of science. For example, the KVANT-1 module had equipment to study astrophysics from the station, and we'll talk more about that in a, in a little bit. So as for the name Mir, you might wonder what that means. Well, because, you know, salute means salute, for example. So what does Mir mean? It's actually a little tricky to translate into English. Now, you could say it translates to the English word for world or that it translates into the word for peace, but it's actually more specific than that. So prior to 1861, Russia operated under a serfdom structure with... Lots of Russians as serfs. Uh, and approximately one third of all Russians were serfs. But Tsar Alexander II decreed that all serfs were freed, though that also meant they were free to pay rent to their landlords. Uh, the word mir means a peasant community that owned its own land, when previously it did not have that ownership. So there are a few contextual, subtle things going on with that name that are difficult to capture with a single word in English. So, despite all the obstacles, the USSR launched Mir's core module on February 20th, 1986. This was an uncrewed mission to get the core into orbit, and it was successful. So, no cosmonauts were aboard at this point, but it did deploy from its launch vehicle and enter orbit. The core module resembled the monolithic space stations of the Salyut era, I mean, after all, they were both based off the same seed, the Almaz military platform, and it measured about 43 feet or 13 meters in length. And the widest part of the stepped cylinder, you know, some parts of the cylinder were wider than the others, uh, but the widest part was 13.8 feet in diameter or 4.2 meters. On either end of the station were docking points. And at the forward end, there were four more docking points around the circumference of the station. So six in total, as I said. Just a couple of weeks after the core module entered orbit, a spacecraft, a Soyuz spacecraft, carrying Vladimir Solovyov and uh, Leonid Kizim docked with the station. Uh, Actually, first it docked with Mir for 55 days. So they docked with Mir for 55 days. Then they left Mir, and they went to dock with Salyut 7, which allowed the cosmonauts to load equipment from Salyut 7 into their Soyuz-T spacecraft. And then they carried that back to Mir after spending about two months aboard Salyut 7. And each of these trips between space stations took about 29 hours to travel. So more than a full day to get from one to the other. And they did it a couple times. Uh, It was the first time the spacecraft had docked with two space stations during a single mission. The two cosmonauts became the first residents of the Mir space station. And again, this version of Mir was just the core module. So it was a lot like the Salyut stations. In fact, the first module to join Mir and expand the station wouldn't come online until 1987. That first module was the Kvant 1, which I mentioned earlier, and it was an astrophysics module. Now, if you look at illustrations of Mir when it was, you know, complete, when all the modules had attached to it, you would see how complicated this modular approach could become. Some folks kind of likened it to Tinker Toys. The KVANT-1 module connected to the aft end of the core module, so opposite where the Soyuz capsule would dock. The Soyuz capsule docked in the the forward side of the station. The KVANT-1 was attached to the aft side. The KVANT-1 module had its own extra docking port in the aft of its module and it also had a pair of very long solar panels, uh, as did the Mir core. I should also add that, while that's the configuration I saw in one illustration, the Russians frequently rearranged the modules of the Mir space station, so I don't know if that was how it was configured throughout the entire history of Mir, because it did move some modules around at different times in order to prep space for new modules joining the station. The Kvant 1 module was built on top of an earlier spacecraft design, the TKS spacecraft. The original purpose for that type of spacecraft was to serve as a resupply cargo ship for those Almaz military stations. But the KVANT-1 was all decked out with scientific gear. It had two pressurized compartments in which cosmonauts could work safely, and it also had an unpressurized compartment where specific experiments could take place, and it had an airlock. According to a few different sources I found, the KVANT-1 was supposed to dock not with Mir originally, but with the Salyut-7 space station. And if it had, that would have made Salyut-7 the first modular space station in orbit. But the development of KVANT-1 was a rocky journey in of itself, and in the process, the decision was made to switch it over to Mir instead of Salyut-7. The scientific instruments uh, aboard the KVANT-1 included X-ray telescopes, spectrometers, an ultraviolet telescope, and more. The KVANT-1 would study stuff like quasars and neutron stars, and it needed those solar panels because the equipment aboard the KVANT-1 required a lot of electricity to use, more than what the Mir core would be able to generate on its own and still provide, you know, important stuff like life support. It also didn't have its own propulsion system, and that made me wonder how the heck did it manage to dock with Mir if... KVANT-1 didn't have propulsion, how did that work? Well, the answer to that question will be coming up right after we take this break. Alright, so how did KVANT-1 dock with Mir if it didn't have a propulsion system of its own? Well, it relied on a special spacecraft called an FGB-tug, like a tugboat, Essentially, the tug docked with the KVANT-1 and then acted as the propulsion unit and moved it to dock with Mir before it would disengage and fly off. The KVANT-1 itself was a variation of the FGB, so both of these were spacecraft that were based on the earlier TKS spacecraft. That meant that with FGB and the KVANT-1 together, it was two spacecraft joined uh, and one of them was just acting as the propulsion system for the joint spacecraft. The docking of Kvant 1 to Mir did not go as planned. First, there was a failure of the control system that delayed everything. Then, after fixing that, there was an issue with the two spacecraft actually forming a solid seal as they docked together. Something was preventing them from locking in. So the cosmonauts aboard Mir donned spacesuits and had an emergency EVA, or spacewalk. And on that spacewalk, they found out what the problem was. There was a trash bag in the docking ring on Mir that was preventing a seal with the Kvant one That kind of raises more questions, but I don't have any answers to them, so I'm not going to bother to ask them. Anyway, the cosmonauts removed the trash bag... And then the two spacecraft were finally able to dock together securely. The tug then disengaged from Kavat one but the whole process meant that it no longer really had sufficient propellant to enter into a controlled de-orbiting path, which was what the plan had been. So instead, the Soviets decided that they would use a, a shorter boost to push the FGB tug up into a higher orbit so that it would become a later Earth problem. And it would eventually undergo orbital decay, and it would reenter Earth's atmosphere on August 25th, 1988, in an uncontrolled re-entry. That, those are words that you don't ever like to read. <laughs> uncontrolled re-entry is not good. Kvant one would get a lot of upgrades over the years, with cosmonauts adding solar arrays or taking arrays from other parts of Mir and then installing them in Kvant one But by the mid-90s, Most of the instrumentation aboard KVANT-1 had long since failed, it had gone beyond its useful life, and the module was used for, and I quote, rubbish storage. Which, that kind of stings, doesn't it? But before it became a trash pit in space, KVANT-1 was an active lab and expanded the living space of the space station. It also had some impressive mechanical stabilizers that used flywheel mechanisms that would allow the space station to reorient in space without having to use propellant and thrusters. Now, the space station did have thrusters and it did have propellant, but obviously you want to be really judicious with how you use that stuff because you have a limited amount on board and it's not easy to bring more up to you. So using these mechanical systems... And sparing the fuel meant that, you know, you were being much more efficient. And it was pretty darn cool. So just using physics instead of propellant, really interesting. But the Kvant 1 was just one of the modules that attached to Mir. The second one was, prepare yourself, Kvant 2. This happened in 1989. Now this one would provide more power to the station. It also included additional flywheel mechanisms for orientation And it also had a large airlock. And unlike KVANT-1, it had a propulsion system. So to get into the whole development of this, about why the Soviets decided, okay, after KVANT-1, this whole FGB tug thing is a bad idea, it would take way too long to get into all the stuff about that. But essentially, it boils down to them saying, well, if we have a propulsion system attached to the modules, we can actually make more use of more space which makes way more sense than to use a tug to push it into place and then jettison it. So the KVANT-2 would become the first of those types of modules. The KVANT-2 docked with Mir on December 6, 1989 at the axial forward port, and then subsequently a manipulator arm on the space station uh, unplugged KVANT-2 <laughs> and then plugged it into its new home, which was on a radial port on the Mir core module. And this is pretty much standard operating procedure when modules would join. They would first dock with one part of the station, then the manipulator arm would end up moving them to its you know new home. And in some cases it was a permanent home, in some cases, you know, they would rearrange later on. The Kvant 2 had shower facilities, not too different from what I described aboard Skylab. Also had a water regeneration system. Uh, Water on space stations is a truly precious commodity, and I'll talk about how space stations manage that a little bit later. We'll really talk about it more in the ISS episode coming up later on down the line. It also had life science and material science experiments aboard the kvant 2, and it expanded the space cosmonauts could occupy once again. It gave folks more room in the space station. Now, the next module to join the party was Crystal or Crystal, I guess it's K R I S T A L L. Though I've also seen it spelled with just the one L. This happened uh, in 1990. Now originally it carried the designation of Kvant-3, but they decided to change it up. And this is the module that had one of its solar arrays removed and then later installed in Kvant-1. This would be a few years after it had, you know, merged with Mir. It also incorporated some docking mechanisms that were meant to work with the Baran spacecraft. Though, as I mentioned, the Baran program would get the axe before any such space plane could visit Mir. However, it would come in handy when the space shuttle, the United States Space Shuttle, would visit Mir. We'll get there. Like Vont 2, Crystal, or Crystal, (laughs) docked... (laughs) I can't say Crystal without laughing. But it docked at a forward axial port on Mir and then got shifted around by the manipulator arm. And it was a module that moved a couple of times during the lifetime of year, usually to allow for some other module to join the party. And it included a resupply of food. So it had, you know, food storage aboard this module. It also had industrial processing equipment. So think of something like a space furnace something that falls into the materials science category. And these experiments would be important for the pursuit of long-term space exploration. The idea being that humans in the future might gather raw materials from various sources in outer space, such as asteroids, and then they might process those materials to make useful stuff that they could, you know, take advantage of on board a spacecraft. The module also had an Earth observation camera, uh, gamma ray telescope and several spectrometers. And then the fourth extension of Mir was Spectre, which isn't just a villainous organization in James Bond movies. And it's actually spelled differently. Spectre is spelled S P E K T R. It launched in 1995, but that is skipping over some really important stuff that happened in between the launch of Crystal and Spectre. So in 1990, when Crystal launched, and the you know, in, when Spectre launched in 1995, in between that, you had a really important event take place. This was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That process really began in the late 80s, with various territories within the then-USSR declaring independence from the Federation, and by late 91, the situation had escalated to the point that the Soviet Union was no longer a union. And it ceased to be. Gorbachev, the president of the USSR, resigned, and things were thrown into uncertainty across all aspects of the various nations, including the Soviet-era space program. Now, the original purpose of Spectre was to be military in nature. It was to be a counterpart to the proposed U.S. project of Star Wars. And boy howdy, I'm gonna have to do a full episode about Star Wars, I think, because that was a heck of a thing. Uh, I remember it as being a really big deal when I was growing up and in the 80s, and uh, it was a really controversial subject. Uh, it was also a massive failure in many respects, including as a means to deter the Soviet Union from developing long-range nuclear weapons. The idea being, oh, if we have a system that can shoot down your nuclear weapons, there's no need for you to keep building more. That logic ended up... Not being effective. Anyway, Spectre was supposed to be part of a program that would serve as a platform for space-based weaponry, presumably to shoot down ICBMs from the United States headed towards Soviet targets. But the collapse of the Soviet Union left the program in limbo. So the partially completed module was left sitting in a shop. And the same was true for the following module called Proroda. Former Soviet leaders had lots of stuff to worry about, well outside the space program, and so both of these modules were effectively mothballed for a few years. Then the Americans chimed in. Once the Soviet Union fell apart, America was like, hey, we can help you out. So in 1993, NASA reached out to Russian leadership and offered to foot the bill to complete both Spectre and Perota on the American dime, provided that NASA would also be allowed to incorporate several hundred pounds worth of scientific experiments on the two modules. The military platforms gave way to scientific experiments, including one that would allow scientists to expose experiments to the vacuum of space using manipulator arms attached to the station, and much of the rest of the station got retooled to study atmospheric science on Earth. The Russians agreed to this plan, and they decided they were going to launch Spectre in 1994, but there were some delays, and this time the delay was because, and I am not kidding about this, the American equipment destined to be installed in Spectre got held up in customs. As such, the module was not ready for launch until the spring of 1995, and it took off on May 20th of that year. The final module to join Mir was called Prerota, and it was also meant to at least be partly a military platform for Mir, serving in a surveillance function, and some of the states in the USSR had provided instruments meant to further scientific studies, but upon the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russia was left solely in charge of Mir, and the other former Soviet states saw their experiments withdrawn from the module. A German multispectral scanner was added to it, but then all the funding for the program got the axe, and Perota joined Spectre in storage until the Yanks came along and offered to pay for the rest of the construction and development costs. The additional weight of the American experiments onboard Perota necessitated a change in the spacecraft. Originally, it was going to carry an additional solar array in the forward section of the craft, but the Russians removed that in order to conserve mass, and it would the, the solar array would launch on a later cargo vessel and cosmonauts would install it during a spacewalk. The experiments that did make it aboard Perota concentrated on stuff like studying the relationship between Earth's atmosphere and its oceans, uh, measuring land characteristics from space, measuring the roughness of the sea surface, measuring optical effects through the atmosphere, as well as measuring trace elements in the atmosphere... And finally, studying how the surface of the sea reflects microwave radiation. And with Peroda, Mir was complete. You had the core module, and you had the other six modules attached to it. As I mentioned earlier, occasionally the Russians would use the manipulator arm on the outside of the station to kind of rearrange where the modules were. Those aboard the space station would inhabit the core module. They would seal off whichever modules were being moved, and like I said, if you look in illustration of Mir, mirror, you'll see how the pl- pieces all connected in various ways to one another to create the full station. It's pretty nifty. I also like that you could be working in an orientation that's 90 degrees from someone else in another part of the station. But because there's not really an up or down when you're in microgravity, from your own perspective, it would look like the other person was, you know, at a 90 degree angle from you. So they're sideways, but they would feel the same way about you. Because again, up and down a relative. Prerota would dock with Mir on April 26th, 1996, and it got to its final location, quote unquote, final location on the 27th. So something else happened before Mir was made complete with the addition of uh, Spectre and Priroda, and that's the shuttle Mir missions. Uh, at least some of them happened before that. Now, I mentioned earlier that under Soviet control, Mir had a special airlock system, sometimes called the Androgynous Peripheral Assembly System, or APAS, APAS, After the dissolution of the USSR, there was an interest in building a stronger link between Russian and American space programs, with the U.S. proposing links with Mir using the newly launched Space Shuttle program. So Russia sent an APAS to NASA, and NASA oversaw its incorporation into the payload bay of space shuttle Atlantis. The shuttle Mir mission had three parts to it. One was that a cosmonaut would join an American crew aboard a space shuttle. That happened when Sergei Krikalev joined space shuttle mission STS-60 that was on board space shuttle Discovery. That mission lasted eight days. The second component was that an American astronaut would visit Mir, that honor fell to Norman E. Thagard, who boarded a Soyuz spacecraft in Russia to rendezvous with Mir in March of 1995. His mission lasted 115 days total and included the arrival of both the Spectre module as well as a visit from Space Shuttle Atlantis. And that was the third part of the Shuttle Mir program, the docking of an American space shuttle with the Russian space station. I'll explain more after we take this quick break. You know, one thing I haven't covered yet about Mir is that the crew aboard the space station could fluctuate over time. You could have crews from one Soyuz capsule mix with crews from the previous capsule. Uh, And so there were times where the space station was hosting more people than other times. When Thaggard and his crewmates joined the station in 1995, it brought the total population up to 13. 13 folks and only two toilets. Don't worry, we'll be sure to cover the toilet situation in this episode. Before long, however, members of the Mir-17 crew, because they they were all numbered by how many missions were visiting the station, so Mir-17, that crew left the station to return home, and the cosmonauts assigned to the Mir-18 mission stayed aboard Mir. One of those to return home was Valery Vladimirovich Polyakov, Uh, He had been aboard Mir for an astounding 14 months, one year, two months, setting a world record that is yet to be beaten. When he joined Mir, he was part of the 15th crew of that space station and he left as part of the 17th crew. So he was parts of crews uh, 15, 16, and 17. So he had been there for a while. Also, that was his second trip up to Mir. His first one was back in 1988, when he was part of cruise Mir 3 and Mir 4. He had stayed up there for 240 days on that first go-round. Atlantis launched on June 27, 1995, and carried two cosmonauts, Anatoly Solovyev and Nikolai Buterin who would transfer to Mir and stay on as members of Mir-19. The shuttle docked with Mir two days after the launch, and it went smoothly. It connected through the Kristall module and the rest of the station, and all ten cosmonauts and astronauts aboard gathered in the core module to celebrate the occasion. The shuttle remained docked with Mir for several days, leaving with the Mir-18 crew as part of the shuttle crew on July 4th, and the Mir-19 crew boarded their Soyuz capsule and disengaged from Mir temporarily in order to record the process of the shuttle departing the station. So we actually have pictures and video of the space shuttle departing Mir because some cosmonauts got into the Soyuz capsule and blasted off for a little ways to get those pictures. Once that was all done, the Soyuz capsule returned to dock with Mir, and the shuttle then moved off to conduct a few more experiments before it ultimately returned to Earth. Atlantis would take return trips to Mir six more times. So Shuttle Atlantis visited Mir seven times total. That included a mission that brought astronaut Shannon Lucid to the station as part of STS-76. Lucid would set a record for the longest stay in space by an American up to that point, and also the longest stay for a woman. During her stay at Mir, Perota would end up joining the station and complete it. Lucid would also plant a crop of wheat and it would ultimately go from being a seedling to producing seeds of its own. It was the first example of someone taking a crop through the full life cycle in space. The wheat would return to Earth aboard another Atlantis mission, STS-81. Space Shuttle's discovery and endeavor would also dock with Mir once each before the space station would be retired. All missions took place between 1995 and 1997, And during that time, Mir experienced a major and potentially catastrophic emergency. A couple of them, actually. So in February 1997, a backup oxygen-generating device caught fire on the station. Now, as you might imagine, a fire on a space station is incredibly dangerous. According to Russian authorities, the fire only lasted less than two minutes. But those aboard Mir said it was more like 14 minutes. It generated a lot of smoke and those aboard had to put on respirators in order to breathe. Also, they found out that some of the respirators proved to be non-functional. Not great! The smoke blocked an exit path to the Soyuz capsule, so there was no escape from the station. It made it escape poss- impossible, because you, your pathway was blocked to your one-way home. Ultimately, the crew was able to extinguish the fire using like a wet towel and a fire extinguisher, But they had to continue to wear respirators for, you know, like 45 minutes or so in order for the smoke to clear out. Another serious accident happened on June 27th, 1997. A cargo spaceship collided with the Spectre module during docking procedures, and the collision created a small hole in the exterior of Spectre, which caused Spectre to depressurize. Michael Foley, an American artist inside Spectre at the time of this crash, felt the pressure in his ears change. That was his warning to get the heck out of Dodge, or or Spectre. And he exited the module, and the mirror crew sealed Spectre off from the rest of the station. The collision also caused damage to some of the station's solar panels, so the crew ended up turning off some of the experiments in order to conserve power. Fortunately, in neither of those accidents was there any loss of life. And the experiences really drove home the need to develop efficient and effective emergency procedures for cosmonauts and astronauts to follow, should the worst happen. The last crew to visit Mir did so in April 2000, journeying to an empty space shuttle. So, the previous crew, which had left in August of 1999, actually ended a nearly 10-year streak of continuous occupation of the space station— Not continuous with the same people, obviously. You had different crews coming in and relieving others. But I think it was like a week and one day short of a full 10 years of continuous occupation when the last crew had left. Then the space station remained empty and dormant for a good long while until April 2000. And this was uh, from a private space company, MirCorp was the name of the company, Uh, because funding had run out in Russia to have a state-backed space uh, agency focusing on Mir. At this point, attention was turning toward a different space station, the ISS, the International Space Station, which we'll talk about in the next episode. So the mission that flew up to Mir in April 2000 was, as I said, a privately funded mission from Mir Corp. Uh, The two cosmonaut crew was to conduct repairs and reactivate the station with the hope that private companies could keep Mir in operation. However, Mir had already lived well beyond its expected lifespan. The station was going to need a lot of repairs, and the investment would be considerable, and with the ISS taking form, it was just too hard to sell, and MirCorp could not get the funds to pay for anything more than the first mission in 2000. So Mir had run out of time and money, and in 2001, it would deorbit. Like Skylab, there was some worry here on Earth that Mir might end up crashing down on some populated area, and Mir was much, much bigger than Skylab. But Russian engineers took steps to have a controlled deorbit, orbit and the station ultimately broke apart above the South Pacific. All right, I also promised that I would talk about pooping on Mir. Uh, I mentioned that Mir had two toilets. One was in the core module, which is good news because, you know, it was a while before Kvant 1 joined Mir and made it a modular space station. And the second toilet was located in Kvant 2. Now, if you look at pictures of a Mir toilet you had best prepare yourself for some psychological trauma. It does not look much like a toilet at all. It looks like a canister that has some sort of tube thing in the front of the canister's opening. So to use the facilities, you would position yourself on the toilet. It had a, a fastening system or straining system with restraining bars to keep you sealed to the seat. Very important. You don't want stuff, you know, floating around. We had already had experiences with that in previous space missions. The toilet had a fan to create airflow to help with feces collection. And so the feces would go into collection bags, which in turn would go into an aluminum container for storage. But urine was different. This is where that tube comes in. It was a hose, and you had urine funnel adapters that you would attach to the end of the hose. And unlike other space toilets in the past... This one had adapters designed so that both men and women could make use of the toilet. No more of that sexist male-only stuff here. It was not a no-girls-allowed kind of thing, which, you know, was refreshing, really. Now, the hose would collect the urine and would send it on to a watery recovery system. And you might think, what the what? But yeah, water recovery was a big part of Mir, and it remains an important part of space travel in general. We need water to survive, and there's no easy way to get additional water when you're in space. So you have to make the most with what you have. You want to use what you have as much as you can, and that means you need systems in place to collect wastewater, treat it, and then recycle it for further use, including as drinking water. Now, another use of water on board Mir was to run an electric current through water. This is a process called electrolysis, The result is that electricity breaks the molecular bonds between hydrogen and oxygen. Now, this is one way to generate oxygen in space, though it does mean relying on water in order to do that. Water recycling involves moving wastewater through a series of filters to remove all the contaminants, leaving pure water behind. And the ISS would use a similar approach, creating a closed-loop system to capture water not just from urine, but also from sweat and even water vapor from breathing. We'll talk about that in the ISS episode. While the Mir space station would come hurtling down in 2001, part of it lives on. In our next episode, when we do talk about the International Space Station, we'll learn about a module very similar to Mir's core module that serves as the heart of the ISS. As for what we learned from Mir, well, apart from all the secret stuff that got buried in Soviet files, we learned a lot about the long-term effects that being in space can have on the human body. We observed how the body can change over time in microgravity, including stuff like bone and muscle loss. The things we learned will be crucial should we ever take the step toward establishing long-term space habitats on the moon or on Mars, not to mention just, you know, handling the effects of space travel between Earth and Mars, because that journey alone takes around, you know, more than half a year. So we learned a lot from Mir, even beyond, like, all the the super shady stuff that the Soviets were doing, or at least the semi-shady stuff. Um, and, and obviously a lot of that learning continues on with the International Space Station. So in our next episode, we will turn our, our uh, thoughts and eyes and ears toward the ISS. And we'll also talk about a couple of other space stations and uh, and talk about what the future holds. Oh, and I'll also cover the space station that never was, a.k.a. FREEDOM but that's in the next one. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle we use for the show is called Tech Stuff HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,